Welcome to the Michelle Meow Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. Excited? We're still here at TuneIn. They have not kicked us out for overeating or overstaying. And actually, it is pretty exciting. We're here uh, down near King Street. And if I can give you just a picture of what it looks like for me, all I'm seeing is opening day for the San Francisco Giants. Um, I didn't know it was a holiday and people don't go to work on this day (laughs) and just kind of hang out and wait for the game to start. So very, very exciting. But aside from the game and this wonderful place, this new home that we call TuneIn, we have an exciting show for you. We continue to focus on local politics here in San Francisco. Uh, One of the main reasons why is because it's great to have people in studio as our our guests uh, while we wait for our phone lines. But at the same time, I think that a lot of people can learn a thing or two with what's happening in San Francisco politically, what's happening in California politically, and, and our relationship with the, the federal government. Um, but And also, there's so many people now who are interested in getting in, involved politically, so I think having this conversation makes a lot of sense. So let's get our program started. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit Pacific PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our next guest is a candidate for mayor, and there are many candidates who are running for mayor of San Francisco, but uh, she is actually the first candidate to visit us here at TuneIn to talk on the Michelle Miao Show, even though I have relationships with several of the candidates who are running. And the idea is that I wanted to hear a new, fresh perspective, and this voice is very much focused on the issues that we're all thinking about, and I think it's a it's a national issue, and that issue is of income inequality, which leads to some of uh, the the uh, I think uh, which leads to some of the most important issues that we're talking about, such as homelessness. So I'd like to uh, introduce our our major guest today, Amy Farrow Weiss. Amy, welcome to the program. Thanks, great to be here. Uh, Yeah, so I brought it up right away. I mean, homelessness. It seems to be something that you continue to talk about, and it seems to be the core of your campaign. Even if other candidates are talking about it, uh, I feel like this is is what you started with. It might might even be the reason why you're running. Yes, so I have experience working in direct service and program development and program evaluation in a variety of fields, including mental health, including transitional housing. When I was about 23 years old, I moved to Portland, Oregon from the Bay Area and worked at a transitional housing shelter for women doing education and employment coordination work. And so I got a taste of that there and then continued to work in the mental health field and leadership and development field. So fast forward to 2015. I decided to run for mayor against Ed Lee, and there were many reasons why I decided to do that. And one of them was that his solution to dealing with encampments was a move-along strategy. So the city of San Francisco today currently spends annually $30 million for a move-along strategy. That is not included in the Department of Homelessness budget. That is DPW, $8.7 million, and it is SFPD, $20.6 million for that move-along strategy. When Ed Lee said that for Super Bowl 50, he was going to be focused on moving people out of that area so that we could have a celebration for sports, I said, why don't we do something different? 
I know that sports are something that unify people and we have a team approach. Why don't we have the St. Francis Homelessness Challenge where as a city in the Bay Area, we're challenging other cities to actually come up with solutions that are actionable to address our encampment and shelter shortage crisis. Because I grew up in the Bay Area. I don't know about you. Did you grow up Mm -hmm. in the Bay Area? So you've been around in in San Francisco for decades, and you know that we've had encampments for decades. This is something that people often blame Ronald Reagan for, rightly so, with his lack of community-integrated mental health support after he uh, shut down the psychiatric hospitals, and then at the national level, cutting funding for housing. And so those two things did have an impact. But I'm 41 years old. I'm ready for us to say it's time for us to be responsible for the change and not blame Ronald Reagan and not blame our administrators, not blame or critique Ed Lee, but rather run against Ed Lee in 2015 in order to put forward actionable solutions. So that $30 million move along strategy, I would like to reinvest that money, direct it in a different direction so that it's a $30 million you belong strategy. Mm-hmm. But you belong because you need, everybody belongs. Mm-hmm. We have to have this transformative approach to understanding that people as human beings truly belong in society. Uh, but it's with reasonable agreements and reasonable responsibilities in community on the pathway to healing and housing. And so that $30 million, if we direct it, we could have 60 hours of trained on-site support for every 20 people that are on the street. We could create individual shelters working with those encampment residents and create agreements and community integration with the neighbors, with the property owners, and the village residents that would be in these SOS villages, safe, organized spaces. Right, right. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And uh, that was going to lead to my next question in talking about, so if we don't do the move along and we do a you belong, what does $30 million buy us? And if $30 million is even enough to budget for the what we would consider solutions to the problem that we're facing? So there's, I have something that I call an outcomes tracker. I've developed uh, 12 different categories and about 40 uh, and rising uh, amount of different deliverables that I want the next mayor to be held accountable to. So I've, I've started to solicit review from voters and Democratic clubs and unions, and it's called an outcomes tracker. You can get to it on my website. And at the very top are, is the category homelessness and shelter shortage uh, crisis outcomes. And the first thing that we need to do is stabilize our 3,000 to 3,500 residents that are currently living on the street. That is a manageable crisis. I want everybody to fully understand in their bones that being able to create safe, organized spaces now in a crisis response to the 3,000 to 3,500 people living on our streets currently is very doable. We can do this. Mm -hmm. I have been trying to work with all the people that are running for mayor. Mark Leno came to our Safe Organized Spaces Working Group meeting 
And as an aside, I started a nonprofit called the St. Francis Homelessness Challenge uh, just weeks after the 2015 election. And I dove into being able to put into practice what I had been talking about was possible in the 2015 election. And I've spent the last two and a half years developing, modeling, researching, piloting all of uh, the things that I was talking about in regards to addressing the encampment crisis. So Mark Leno came to one of our meetings. Angela Alioto I met with a, a month before Ed Lee passed away. I've been trying to work with Jane Kim's office, and a year ago, her aide told me that they were going to move forward on two of the things that I was talking about, um, but didn't move forward on them. Mm -hmm. And London Breed's office has never gotten back to me. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I decided to run in this race because none of the candidates were proposing that it was possible to address the 3,000 to 3,500 people that are currently living in crisis. And it is. That $30 million is for 3,000 people. I've created a model that scales up that much. We have the land available from the public land. Uh, we also can work with private landowners who have their their projects in entitlement phase and they're waiting for permitting so we can use their land temporarily and have a lease agreement with them and insurance. You know, this is very well thought out. I have insurance, yeah. license agreement, a structure for all of these things. And so it's entirely possible. And I want all the voters and residents of San Francisco to truly take away this message from listening to this today that it is entirely possible for us to stabilize the 3,000 to 3,500 people that are currently living in crisis on our streets. And if we invest that money to heal at the root, rather than the $30 million currently being spent on symptoms, then we will see a decrease in crime. We will see mm -hmm. an increase in public safety and livability for everyone. And then we can actually help to export this model and other cities are already doing similar things, mm -hmm. such as Seattle. Oakland has actually recently started a, an iteration of this model of a safe, organized space. So there's different ways to go about it. The one that I've created, uh, working with a variety of different stakeholders from encampment residents, impacted neighbors, businesses, working with SFPD and DPW on site. This is, what I've created is something San Francisco specific because I'm a Bay Area person. Right, right, right. I love San Francisco. I want to add the arts and culture, the eco yeah. aspect, the participatory democracy. All of those things are baked mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. to the safe, organized spaces model. And for $30 million, we can do it. And by the way, I've went and talked to Jim Lazarus at the Chamber of Commerce, who's their policy director. And the Chamber of Commerce said their number one issue is the unsheltered crisis and mm -hmm. people living on our mm -hmm. streets. There's an opportunity, and I think the business community, the tourism community, the tech community can actually pony up $15 million so that they match the city in addressing this issue and take pride in being able to have San Francisco have a very focused, community-integrated approach right. to right. healing our crisis. 
Now, you mentioned 3,000 to 3,500 people, uh, homeless people who may be considered in crisis. But if we talk about the homeless population in general or as a whole, I think that number skyrockets to somewhere between six to 8,000 um, um, people. And so what, do, what about or what are your thoughts as far as like moving from crisis and rehabilitation of, of you know, people in crisis to sustaining a model that leads to addressing the income inequality, which, you know, the elephant in the room is affordable housing. Like people just can't afford to stay in their homes. And, and that uh, it starts with that. And it just becomes, in my opinion, you know, a, a, a tornado of things mixed into that where addressing this issue is just not one uh, solution. Sure. So like I said, you know, over the last 20 years, I've been working in a variety of fields, including transitional housing and for people that are homeless. And so I've worked in shelters and I know that uh, once we stabilize the 3,000 to 3,500 people that are living in crisis, working together with them, by the way, it's not just that we deal with a problem. We're working with human beings who need the support and stabilization. Then we should also be working over this next year of redesigning our shelter system because you were talking about a number of about 7,500 people total that the point in time count considers homeless. And a, a good chunk of those people are currently in our shelter system. But it's oftentimes a shelter system to nowhere. Uh, there's a story about a man who came here from Utah years ago, and he ended up stabbing someone in a Subway sandwich shop and then getting killed uh, by the police. And he was staying in a shelter. And I know this because one of the people I was working with in an encampment went into the shelter and was that person's bunkmate and was actually scared of him. But that person wasn't required or involved in, in the case management to change his situation. His family said that they didn't know where he was and he was from Utah. And so when they found out that he had been shot and killed for stabbing someone and had declined in his mental health, they were very shocked. And so it's important for us to take our current shelter model and create those pathways to healing and housing and then it's important for us to create the housing as well. Mm. And so if you look at that outcomes tracker, some of the, you know, the, the first three things that are focused on are the homelessness issue and then the, uh, a bulk of the deliverables for our next mayor that I think we should be focusing on are how do we develop the affordable housing that's necessary. And newsflash, the market's not going to take care of it. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. A Amy Farrah Weiss, if you're just tuning in, she's running for mayor here in San Francisco. We're focusing on local government here on the Michelle Miao Show, though many of you who are tuning into progressive voices are from everywhere in the country. But I think that this is a great model. Like this is exactly what I wanted to talk to Amy about is because she has a plan. And I think there are lots of major cities out there who are dealing with some of the same issues or at least symptoms of what's leading to what we're facing as a, as a country. Um, Amy, I'm going to take a quick short break, but when we come back, I want to talk to you about, you know, different campaigns and what people are saying in their campaigns. So don't go away. We'll be right back. We went to the first appointment and my mom, Yvette, and I were in the room as they do that first ultrasound. And he was like this small little peanut. 
Yeah, but you could see the heartbeat. It was just pounding. I just cried. My mom cried. Yvette cried. It was it was very powerful. Started with my dream. Now here's a heartbeat. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face -face with today's thought leaders. Welcome back to the Michelle Meow Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. We're here at the TuneIn Studios, and my special guest today is Amy Farrow Weiss, who's running for mayor here in San Francisco. Just before the break, we were talking about a plan, an actual plan that it can be executed, it can be done in terms of addressing the homelessness crisis that major cities may be facing. And I don't actually think that it's major cities. I mean, I think that there are cities across this country who, if you're tuning in right now, you probably can take a thing or two from what Amy is saying. Um, you know, Amy, I've been kind of dabbling into everybody's uh, campaign and trying to get, you know, what their messaging might be. So may, uh, uh, Mark Leno, you know, his whole tagline is shake up City Hall. And I think that might have to do with something like getting a, getting a different perspective in there or maybe uh, somebody who's not currently serving uh, in a political office in City Hall. I'm not, I'm not really sure. I'm trying to figure that one out. Um, Jane Kim seems to be running on a very progressive messaging. She's the progressive candidate. Uh, London Breed, uh, I'm not, actually, I'm not really sure. <laughs> I'm not sure yet, but, uh, but, but very much some of the messaging that I've heard has been focused on choose a woman, choose a woman of color, uh, something along those lines. You've been very issues-oriented, but I would say that identity politics is really crystal clear in, in this, uh, the mayoral race in San Francisco. I'm hearing, I'm hearing a lot of people you know, some people are deciding based off of gender, based off of race. Where do, what are your thoughts and where do you fall into this conversation of identity politics? It's a great question. And I gave a presentation months ago and I said, beware of the media using identity politics to divide us rather than unite us. And what's happening is that first of all, we have to at the very least understand and hopefully respect what it means to be represented in a position of power if you're a person of color, uh, if you're a woman, if you're gay, if you're queer, uh, 
you know, all of these things, if you're low income, it's, it's important to be, there's something about seeing yourself represented in that office. And that's what we all felt when Obama became president. There was some healing in that just by virtue of being represented um, with our history of racism in this country. So let's understand it. And there are very many different ways that we all identify. And so I personally am someone who ha is, is mixed heritage, uh, you know, German and Scandinavian on my mom's side, Jewish, Hungarian on my dad's side. Uh, you know, my great grandparents came here to avoid, on my dad's side, to avoid being killed and persecuted for their identity. Then, uh, you know, I was raised uh, in a middle class kind of situation because my parents, although they were raised poor, uh, were able to get union jobs and a nurse and a uh, appliance salesman who were both union uh, members were able to buy a house in San Jose in 1977 for $70,000, <laughs> right? And then I was the first generation of my family to go to college, and I went to De Anza Community College, and then I went to UC Santa Cruz. And so I'm also queer, and one of the most important things I learned in high school was the Venn diagram and this idea of overlapping <laughs> identities, which made a lot of sense to me. At De Anza College, I learned about the Kinsey scale yeah. and learned that, you know, there was, a, there was a framework for what I was, which was in between. I consider myself genderqueer and non-binary, which it's wonderful that people actually know what those things mean now in 2018, and I can discuss them. I'm queer and bisexual. And so there's an identity there that people can relate to or not, depending on who they are. But you can also identify with me as a service worker. Mm -hmm. You can also identify with me as someone who started a nonprofit to deal with the issues of our time. You can also identify with me as an activist. You can also identify with me as someone who supports this triple bottom line of people, planet, and sustainable profit. So there are many ways that we identify, and that Venn diagram is what's going to help us here. It's these overlapping circles of, yes, I am excited that there's a woman that's running, but I want it to be a woman who identifies with my politics. So it's not just the packaging and the experience that matters to me or the sexual identity or the gender identity. It's actually what are the values and what is the level of commitment to service of the person that I'm voting for. Oh, thank you so much for that. That was so great. So I have a question, and I think this question I would ask anybody running for public office during this time. I mean, it's a politically interesting, weird, challenging, stressful time um, to be a political leader in a city like San Francisco who has taken a position against the federal government or the president and his administration on issues like immigration, right, That to, to be obvious. Uh, you know, just last month, we saw the attorney general specifically single out the mayor of Oakland for uh, sticking up for our immigrant community. Does any of that, uh, uh, you know, scare you? Uh, or what does it mean to be running for political office during this time in which we have, you know, a president like Donald Trump? It's time to take a stand. And I mentioned before that I went to De Anza Community College. And while I was there, 
that was when I read The People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. And I mention this because it's very important for us as Americans to take a good, hard look in the mirror and understand how our policies and our interaction and interference in other governments, especially in Central America in the 80s and with NAFTA, um, it's affected the economies and the well-being and the environmental uh, protections of other countries. And so when we think about these impacts, we have to look in the mirror and say, you know, what have we done to contribute to this situation? And I don't see Donald Trump doing that work. One of the things that Donald Trump is talking about is that he wants people to feel safe. And so the way that we can feel safe is that, first of all, we keep our families together. We don't have kids being terrified of being ripped apart from their family members who would be sent back to another country. Uh, that's really important. But this idea of Trump focusing on people who have a criminal background, let's be honest that Obama did that same thing mm -hmm. while he was president and he was really trying to focus on people who were in the country that had committed some kind of felony or crime uh, and focus on deporting those individuals. In this time, Trump is saying that he's doing that, but he's actually targeting many people that have no kind of criminal background at all. And so it's important for us to stay on point. If we want safer neighborhoods, we need to make sure that our families that are here, regardless of their documentation status, feel that they can work with local officials. And, and by the way, I don't know what my grandparents' documentation status was. I actually mm. don't know mm. uh, whether or not they came here, quote unquote, legally, but I'm glad that they did. Right. <laughs> and so I understand that people are coming to the United States for this opportunity. Uh, interestingly enough, you know, I was watching a short documentary about this family that came from China and had this impression that living in San Francisco would be a land of opportunity and this family of three with a young child is living in an SRO and very challenged and it was it touched my heart because the young girl said that when she talks to her friends back in China she tells them that she lives in a mansion and I just because she wanted them to think that they were doing well right and so this idea of you know people coming to the United States for a better situation Let's let's unpack that and yeah. what it means. And then for that particular family, it sounded like they actually wanted to go back to China because it didn't work mm -hmm. out the way it did. So there's a, a certain level of individual freedom and responsibility to make choices mm -hmm. that don't always pan out. Mm -hmm. You know, I could decide to move to another country and it could turn out that it's actually harder for me to live there mm -hmm. than in my native country. Uh, because of the language barrier and because there aren't as many opportunities available. And and something that I would really like to bring to politics is this radical honesty piece. Of yeah. Just being able to not have a knee-jerk reaction to you have to be 100% uh, supporting this or 100% against this in order to be a good progressive or to be, to be <laughs> politically correct. It, Thank you. It, right? It, it really... I want us to be able to unpack these things and see how, what percentage of it is the system, what percentage of it is individual choice, 
And that's what I say also about what's going on on the streets. It's very rare that you find someone where it's 100% their responsibility for how they ended up in that situation. It's very rare that it's 100% the system. Usually there's somewhere in between. Thank you so much for saying that. I mean, you said earlier you're 41. I'm, I just turned 36, and there are a lot of younger voters you know, who ask me all the time who are progressive or queer, and he will say, I, I don't know why, but I'm being told or branded that I'm not radical enough or I'm not liberal enough or I don't fit into the whole LGBTQ movement because, you know, I think this or, or I think that. And I think that's really dangerous for somebody to feel that because um, we should go back to allowing for folks to make decisions for themselves. And, and to your point, to really understand kind of where these feelings might be placed as far as like the issues or the political, I'm going to use the word spectrum, um, as we're winding down, I do have a final question for you. I mean, in listening to you this very short time, you'd, you'd talked about running for mayor, uh, and, and you keep saying or, or referring to whoever wins. A lot of times when somebody, you know, runs for political office, they kind of already talk as if they're winning <laughs> in a lot of ways. And so I, I, I would like to ask kind of, you know, where that's coming from. And if I had to guess... I think that it's not uh, a matter of feeling confidence that you're going to win or that you know you're going to lose, but I think that you feel very confident in the platform that you were speaking about and that you know that the, uh, the what you're providing are real solutions, and we're so desperate for those solutions that whatever the results are, we need what you're talking about. Thank you for that. We will win if some of my policy ideas get through and are implemented, regardless of whether or not I'm mayor. I actually do believe that I am the most qualified person to lead our city in this time because we need someone who has focused on that direct service work all the way to the program development and evaluation. I'm a facilitator. I know how to get disparate groups of people together in order to really work on the solution. I'm a bridge. I, you know, I, I don't think that San Francisco needs to drain the swamp. I think that we need to build the backbone bone and build the bridges, and, but build them with integrity so that we're not compromising for the needs, essential needs being met of our people and our planet for corporate profit. So that's where that backbone needs to be built. And I've created this you know, framework for how we can track the progress of the next mayor because I truly want us to make progress no matter who becomes mayor. Remember that we have a year and a half for this next mayor's term. And so there's another election for mayor in November 2019. And that's why I want us to have this framework for tracking performance, because it's important that we see what this person was able to accomplish. And they should really just, whoever becomes mayor should have their head down and not be campaigning for the next cycle, but really show us what they can do. And I would be so impressed if, you know, if I become mayor, I will do this, but I would be so impressed if whether it's London or Mark or Jane or Angela, that they say, you know what, I've noticed that these are the main things that all of my fellow candidates have focused on with passion. 
And so I'm going to give them the opportunity to work on that piece during this next year and a half and see what they can accomplish. Because Angela Alioto wants to focus on clean streets and she wants to focus on people being in permanent supportive housing. I want to focus on healing the encampment crisis. And also, I want to address our opioid crisis and mental health crisis. And part of the way that I would like to do that is through the green rush of economic opportunity through the cannabis industry. And we know that opioid addiction and deaths are much lowered if accessible quality cannabis is available. I worked in the medical cannabis field for a couple of years. So those are a few things and, and also affordable housing, of course. I have some specific ideas that, you know, you say whoever becomes mayor, uh, I see that London Breed is now promoting a couple of things that I talked about in 2015 when I ran for mayor, and she's proposing them as bold ideas. Well, guess what? They are even bolder when I proposed them three years ago for the first time. But wonderful if London Breed wants to implement these. I had always said if Ed Lee becomes mayor when we are running against him, I hope that he implements these things. Jane Kim is focusing on early childhood education right now and education in general. She's been a leader, and so whoever becomes mayor, if it's not her, should really turn to her to be part of that team. Mark Leno wants to activate empty SRO units and work on reform for the Ellis Act, and those are things that he should be doing regardless of who becomes mayor. So, you know, right now I've been talking about how it's the team that's more uh, palatable to people right now, this idea of even superheroes. We don't have individual superheroes as mm -hmm. much. We have the team. And so I think that all San Francisco voters and residents can really appreciate that there are things about every candidate, what they're saying, that resonate with them. And why yep. don't we work together as a team over the next year and a half and see what happens with that before the next election? I love that. I love that. Because, you know, <laughs> That's the part that's hard is that not one person has all of the solutions. And so you're so right. Amy Farrow Weiss, everyone running for mayor of San Francisco, if you would like more information to support her, to learn more, head to weissformayor.com. And Weiss is spelled W-E-I-S-S. -S. Amy, thank you so much for joining us here on Progressive Voices Network. It's great to be here, Michelle. Don't go away. When we come back, we'll talk to community activist Sean Haynes. He'll also be in studio. And uh, there's a lot of things that we can pull from somebody who's not running for office, but who's doing things from a grassroots level. So don't go away. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. We went to the first appointment, and my mom, Yvette, and I were in the room as they do that first ultrasound. And he was like this small. Little peanut. Yeah, but you could see the heartbeat. It was just pounding. I just cried. My mom cried. Yvette cried. It was it was very powerful. Started with my dream. Now here's a heartbeat. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence 
discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Thanks so much for tuning in to Progressive Voices, or I should say the Progressive Voices Network. Uh, we're super excited to be producing out of TuneIn. We're still here and still waiting for phone lines. And so until we get the phone lines, uh, we are inviting LGBTQ dignitaries contributors to our community, activists, really important people in the San Francisco Bay Area who are coming through to the new studios. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our guest in studio today is Claire Farley. She's the senior advisor to the mayor uh, and the executive director of the Office of Transgender Initiatives. I had to make sure I got that right in reading her <laughs> signature. Um, so it sounds really, really, really important, and we're going to hear what she's up to. Claire, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so before we talk about the super important work that you're doing, let's talk about you. It's the first time that you're here on the show, so I normally like to kick it off by uh, having the audience kind of get to know you uh, a little bit better. So Claire, tell us, you know, where did you grow up? Um, was it here in San Francisco? Were you mm-hmm. born and raised? No, actually, I grew up in Missoula, Montana. What? Uh, yes, yes. Um, I was a gay teen in Montana, if you can believe it, um, which I think helped really spearhead my advocacy because I realized, you know, that there were places like San Francisco out there. Um, so it motivated me to find my people, find my family. Um, and so I've been in San Francisco for the last, I guess, 13, 14 years, uh, worked in advocacy, trans advocacy, uh, across the country. Um, and then prior to this role, worked for the LGBT center, running the economic development work there, um, for the last decade. And so, you know, I feel like San Francisco is, I guess it's my home now. It is your <laughs> home. It definitely is. Um, and you're making it, you know, a better place for future homes for our community. Uh, but Missoula, Montana, you know, you're like, you're definitely not the first person that I've met from Missoula, Montana, um, as, as part of the LGBTQ community. So I'm guessing that there's a huge LGBTQ population in Missoula. And when I say huge, that's like 10 out of 100 or something. Right. No, <laughs> I mean, I think my town was probably one of the more progressive towns in Montana, and we had kind of a running joke based on all the trans people I met that was in my grade school or growing up later. I'm like, it must have been in the water or something. <laughs> because there's just so many of us. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely a beautiful place to be. Love to visit. But yeah, glad I'm in California. Yeah. So 20, 2017, 2018, um, 
and uh, we'll see what 2019. It's shaping up to be, you know, these this this very interesting time of our movement, if you will. Uh, there was once upon a time in which it was incredibly hard, uh, if not too violent, to be out as transgender. And we know that, you know, even through reading um, our history, like Compton's Cafeteria, in which in some of the research you'll hear that, you know, people referred to trans women as cross-dressers or drag queens, right? And there was that part of our history. And then there's this big focus of uh, uh, the gay liberation, which um, the priority, in, in my opinion at least, gay men uh, and m- maybe lesbians. Um, and then when we finally get to transgender rights, uh, the mainstream or pop culture is focused on people like Caitlyn Jenner mm-hmm. or something like that. Uh, and then all of a sudden Donald Trump happened. And so I'm kind of just going really fast in how I, I perceived at least, you know, media and it's the, the relationship with transgender rights. I'd love to hear your thoughts or we should hear mm-hmm. your thoughts mm-hmm. and kind of even, you know, your own uh, understanding of how far we've come, but also how incredibly scary. So I tend to think that when we get through, st- uh, we get to scary times, it's always the transgender community that's up first mm-hmm. to bat. Yeah, we're we're in a scary time right now, and you know I think as I as I've heard from other advocates uh, like Janet Mock and Cece McDonald, uh, who have experienced, um, you know I think in this new new era of the administration that you know really saying that the type of discrimination and harassment that our communities experience has always been there. You know, trans women of color have been dying. And the numbers continue to grow as visibility grows, but those things have been taking place. And so I think it's kind of a wake-up call for us to really look at the realities of um, communities being impacted by discrimination, marginalization, poverty. And we have to ask ourselves, like, why did it have to get to this point, you know, where we really see... um, our rights uh, being taken back. Last year, there was over 100 pieces of anti-LGBT legislation introduced. Um, so we're really seeing this kind of reverse um, reverse trend, um, and also an administration that likes to use an attack on trans people as a scapegoat from other issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I don't think that there's really a clear sense of how this has an impact on the community yet. It's still too early to understand. But what we do know from, as you mentioned, Compton's and Stonewall and the folks who have come before us is that we're a resilient community. Absolutely. Um, and so I do have hope for that. But I do feel like uh, we can't continue to allow ourselves to go backward. You know, San Francisco has been one of the leaders uh, in trans and LGBT rights and across policy and programs and initiatives. And so we have to continue to look at the rest of the country mm-hmm. to follow a better model, mm-hmm. regardless of what the White House is doing. Mm-hmm. Now, you're right about the resilience. And people need to know, you know, the the violence that the transgender community faces is um, disproportionate to everyone else here in this country. And when I say that, I mean, the, the numbers are very drastic and high. 
as far as the probability of a trans woman, especially a trans woman of color, being harassed, uh, being assaulted, and uh, being murdered, as you had mentioned, you know, trans women of color are, are being murdered uh, and at a high percentage high rate in comparison to many other communities in America. And there once upon a time or, or uh, especially, you know, for me here on the show in which it was like we every month we were announcing, you know, that there was a death and, and that I called it an epidemic. But for whatever reason, Yes, maybe the media had picked up a story or two, but it didn't ever feel like we were really addressing this or we were prioritizing this even as a community. Now, what I'll say is, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, um, what's happening at least in, in 2017, 2018 is you're seeing transgender leaders who are running for office, who are, uh, you know, be, they're, they're CEOs or they're in leadership in which I think that that possibly could change things in the future. It's too early to tell, but say, for example, somebody like yourself and the mayor's office having an actual initiative for transgender rights. I mean, is this a new thing, and, and could we replicate these programs across the country? Yeah, I think that's the hope. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, in the last year, we had nine trans people elected to public office, which is more in history. Um, and I think we continue to see more trans people recognizing their own power despite whether or not the world around them sees that or mm. recognizes that. Um, and I think also as a community, as LGBT community, and, and even more so as a trans community, we're continuing to see that we have to have an intersectional movement. I mean, yes, trans rights might be under attack, but women's rights, POC rights, immigrant rights are all being under attack. And so if we don't do the work um, in, in collaboration and if we don't raise up the voices of, of our broader communities, then you know we really don't have a hope for the trans community at all. And I think where we do see shift is, you know, in my role, working for the mayor's office, it's such a great opportunity to do work from the inside. You know, when I worked at the center, I was really advocating for grants, working um, to increase programming uh, for marginalized communities and economic empowerment. But what I saw was that there was still a lot of inequity across how much programs were funded. Mm. Um, and so there might be one jobs program or there might be one program um, helping folks get out of jail, but if you look at the broader budget, it wasn't necessarily equal to these larger programs that had more sustainability and more capacity. And then I also noticed that in terms of the policies that were happening is that we weren't really actually having people implement them. So we would have these really great policies and healthcare access, but if we don't have people actually making sure that there are all gender bathrooms and all the SROs and all city buildings and public accommodations, then we can't just expect the goodwill of others and allies to always make those things happen. And so having champions on the inside who can kind of pull you up to the mat when needed, but also work in collaboration so they actually see us as part of the work mm -hmm. um, will help shift minds and um, I think also provide more spaces for additional voices to come to the table. So true, so true. Congratulations, by, by the way, on the bill that had just passed that will 
make sure that all our SROs will have, uh, you know, gender neutral bathrooms, as you just mentioned. But for those tuning in, those who don't live in San Francisco, those who don't know, you know, why this is so important. Can you explain Mm -hmm. that just a little bit? Yeah, so single-room occupancy hotels are often um, uh, housing options for folks that don't have access to traditional pathways to housing. Um, It might be subsidized or lower income. And often these are in the Mission neighborhoods or other uh, neighborhoods where there might be less tenant rights advocacy or less advocacy within. Um, And a lot of the times folks... The, the bathrooms are in a shared, shared facility or shared hallway. And so folks might have to share that restroom with their neighbor or several neighbors. Um, and so often trans people were having to go several floors up or several floors down. And we also noticed that it was also an accessibility issue for folks with disabilities as well, is that they might have to go one floor down in their wheelchair uh, which could be really um, burdensome. And so by allowing for all uh, floors uh, to be all gender, it's both a win for the community, but also a win, again, right. for broader right. broader community as well. Thank you so much for tuning in to Progressive Voices Network and the Michelle Meow Show here on TuneIn. Tell all your friends. Tell them to download the TuneIn app, search Progressive Voices Network, or just the Michelle Meow Show. The Michelle Meow Show is your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. In studio with us in San Francisco, across the street from the ballpark, it's baseball season now, and that's the only reason why I know, is uh, because we're in studio at the TuneIn office, and Claire Farley is our guest. Claire, who does incredible work, uh, I mean, uh, I think just saying transgender activists it, it encompasses a lot, a lot of the large body of work, but she's in the mayor's office working on a transgender initiatives, serving as executive director to that. Um, and so right before the break, we had talked about some important work, uh, a bill that had just passed that impacts or offers gender neutral bathrooms and SROs. But I want to ask you something about a uh, program you started at the LGBT Center, and it has a lot to do with jobs. And, you know, when we talk about inequity, we should definitely make sure people understand income inequality because that def- that that impacts inequity or, yeah, inequity in a lot of ways. Right. There was one program that you were involved in, and uh, it involved, you know, large major tech companies and the transgender community, which I thought was so amazing, so great. And so my question to you, I mean, really has to do with this initiative for diversity when these tech companies themselves are, I mean, you know, let's just face it, the inequity they face in their their workplace is a, a gender issue. Right. So how do we get to the very to something even more marginalized, which is ensuring that transgender people are included in that conversation? Yeah, that's such a great question. I mean, I think that we have to look at it both from kind of an individual level and hold individual employers accountable, because I think there are some trends where we're seeing folks successful and looking at. Um, bias work across interview systems, across application processes, um, and then looking at the inequity across promotions and really doing a great mapping uh, of that work. Um, And so I think where we see some alignment uh, with the women's movement is really thinking about how can we provide more leadership opportunities 
for you know trans folks who are in industries um, or in management that can actually help other trans people grow um, because we know that traditional ways of finding work you know in this competitive market it can be almost impossible right so it is really about who you know um, and as we've seen in the women's movement having networks of other women leaders that can help connect you to new opportunities put in a good word um, and we've seen that obviously in the past which I think led to a lot of inequities is kind of this man's club mentality um, and so I think we need a similar movement for our community that we're really lifting up and honoring and recognizing, okay, I'm going to put this person forward and recommend them. Um, you know, I feel like sometimes we forget to talk about economic development in, yeah. in advocacy, especially in the communities, because we kind of take for granted the, the need for it. But, you know, if we don't have uh, access to work, then it's difficult to keep housing. Um, and so we have to continue to come back to that conversation around how are we providing opportunities for continued education uh, because often LGBT folks don't have support from their families. Um, and then also how do we think about advancement? So a lot of trans folks and non-binary folks might be able to get in the door, but if they come out, they might lose their job or they might not be considered for promotion. Um, and so we have to continue to think about how do we create pathways like the trans employment program at the center and other initiatives that really build that leadership development. So not only do the communities that we work for see our strengths, but we actually see those strengths in ourselves. Right. Right. Wow. Thank you so much for that. It always was mind boggling to me, you know, with these large corporations, um, who have a lot of wealth and a lot of opportunities and resources and, and stand on the values of inclusion and will oftentimes talk about how they are LGBTQ inclusive, but yet you hardly ever see, you know, a, a transgender person at, at these spaces or work at these places who are at the table writing the policies and or, you know, leading for the right kind of culture. Like, how does a cisgender person know, you know, how to create policies that make sense to include transgender people? Like, that always never made sense to me. No, yeah, that's so true. <laughs> yeah, I would do a lot of panels um, with different tech companies, as you mentioned, just to try to help educate the, the employee base. And, you know, I think it was great that they were doing the step to bring me in, but they would often, you know, kind of bust out these HR policies that they developed kind of in isolation with the assumption that every trans person or every non-binary person is going to have this kind of one path to coming mm -hmm. out. And we know, you know, that <laughs> the coming out process and being queer is so different across all of our backgrounds. Um, so there is no one size fits all. Um, so part of the reason why I launched the Hire Trans campaign uh, across social media um, and the hashtag was really to think about, like, it's great to have policy and practice, but if you don't actually hire us, then you're not actually going to make the change. So good. That's exactly what Laverne Cox said to Visa. And then she was here at uh, One Pride at San Francisco Pride, and Visa had hired her to go speak. And, 
the leaders uh, who were part of an LGBT employee resource group were all excited for her, but wanted to only ask questions about, you know, Netflix's Orange is the New Black. And here she was um, two days ago, you know, nine black people had just been shot up by a racist from my hometown in Alabama. And then it gets worse. If I wanted to give you the statistics of how many transgender black women die or, you know, and not just from murders, but from the fact that we're on the streets and we don't have uh, money for housing or for food. It's like folks like you don't hire women like me. And that was so profound for me where it was like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of tired of um, being a part of a, the, the movement in which we just talk the talk. We're not walking the walk. So mm-hmm. I appreciate you and San Francisco in um, you know, creating this initiative that, and that you're there, you're the right person for that job. Something you said earlier about making sure that we're inclusive and intersectional in our approach as far as where this movement is going and the work that we do. So I wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, this movement that is happening, younger folks going out and being politically engaged and marching and protesting Women, the Women's March, you know, single-handedly, I think, historically speaking, one of the largest one-day protests in our history. Um, But I also understand, you know, that these movements uh, inadvertently, accidentally, not on purpose, uh, may not be as inclusive as we think. What do you think? No, it's true. I mean, I think where we need to start, too, is recognizing where our own privileges are and Mm. coming to the table, you know, and I think that's the issue around any movement that has one or two kind of individual leaders. And so I think kind of that pathway of solo leadership needs to shift. And I think by recognizing what we bring to the table and recognizing how those privileges are used to advance the movement forward is one thing, but to do it out of just having power of one voice. Um, You know, and I think the women's movement learned a lot from last year, you know, when there was so many white women Mm. in leadership, but really no women of color involved at the same level. And so I think we have to continue, you know, I know myself as a white trans woman, recognizing where I need to step back and provide space. um, And then also recognizing where I can kind of utilize my privilege to help shift the conversation and help other white people recognize that they have to have that conversation as well. And I think the same goes for cis privilege as well, is like how do we recognize when we're in spaces where we can make change if we see discrimination or someone using the wrong pronouns or, you know, even though she's awful sometimes, make a Caitlyn Jenner joke, (laughs) we still hold it accountable, you know, that despite the fact that we may not agree with her um, or anything she does that, you know, we still have to respect people's identity. Absolutely. Bottom line. Absolutely. My last question for you is it's a tough question for both of us um, in a lot of ways. And it has to do with, you know, the pride celebration and this growing uh, uh, dissatisfaction, dis- discontent of, you know, where the movement has gone. As someone who now is in leadership with the city, the city who, you know, this two-day celebration will absolutely be proud for the progress it's made for LGBTQ rights, 
what would you like to say about how, you know, pride organizations, pride celebrations and the relationships with the most marginalized, especially trans, trans people of color, non-binary, queer people of color, and how they feel about, you know, police engagement, how they feel about everything, homelessness, poverty, mm. economic inequality, all which then gets criminalized. And uh, Oh, it's so true. Well, I'm going to hold you to bat really quick because you said two-day celebration, but actually it's three. They oh, right. include Friday, <laughs> well, yeah. which is Trans March. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. No, see, see I, we need this work open together. It up, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that's part of it is that I feel like we need to recognize that, you know, our movements have always started in resistance and in protest. And I think we're back in a moment where we really do need LGBT folks to step up for immigrants and to really make a stand that we can't continue to allow um, for these injustices to happen. And it's not a moment of celebration. I mean, I think we can celebrate our lives and our resiliency. Um, you know, we had the same experience with Trans Day of Remembrance on the 31st is that it really is one of the only days we get to celebrate uh, trans lives outside of uh, Day of Remembrance. So I think we have to continue to come back and check whether or not we are in a moment of celebration. And I think through that, recognizing how can we use those opportunities of mass visibility to really make change.